You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. And a good morning to Dr. History. Good morning, Zev. How you doing? Doing good. Uh, still a little cold out there, but... You know, a little when a they're little. calling for highs of only 28 and lows well, of 8 and I, all that kind of stuff. I said a little cold. Yeah. Could be worse. What's going on in your world of thank yous around the world? Well, I actually don't have any this week. I pretty well thanked everybody that called me in the, or emailed me a week or really? so. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So kind of Nobody's unusual. told both of us to just leave town or no, anything? No, oh. no threats, nothing. Okay. <laughs> so, but uh, we're going to leave Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett behind now. We're, yeah, I think we've had enough of Billy the Kid. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of done with him. Okay. So, <clears throat> so, Zeb, today, uh, I know you always give me a hard time about talking about things before lunch, but we're going to do it. Oh, where are you headed? We're going into the profession of medicine. And certain things that happen there. Certain things. You'll, you'll see. This is going to be gruesome. This is just a little, uh-huh. you know. So there's a quote uh, by a Dr. Letson, and he says, quote, When people's ill, they comes to I. I physics bleeds them and sweats them. Sometimes they live. Sometimes they die. What's that to I? I lets them. <laughs> Is that a real poem? Yes. Where, where was that from? Uh, this guy named Dr. J.C. Letson. And I'm sure he had people lined up to come see yeah. him. Yeah, after, especially after that poem. Yeah. But, you know, the profession of medicine in America kind of got off to a bad start. Uh, the early doctors were kind of, they hung on to beliefs and techniques that centered around what they call the humors of the body. Uh-huh. Blood, phlegm, yellow bile, black This is bile. going to be really good, You're I can gonna tell. You're going to like yeah. this. And whether the illness was cold or hot, there were no curative drugs or methods. And if purging, blistering, sweating, or bleeding didn't work, there was nothing else they did. So every so often, epidemics, you know, wiped out thousands, and no one knew why some survived and others didn't. And uh, so solving this question led to what they called the science of medicine. The science. Yes. So until after the Civil War... The medical practice in America was kind of in a dark ages. Uh, I mean, but the latter part of the 19th century, they started having some progress. The discovery of bacteria as a cause of infection in the 1880s uh, literally <clears throat> revolutionized per- public health. So they didn't find out about that until 1880s? Right. So that's why during the Civil War, so many, uh, you know, they didn't know about cleaning things and, up. And they after. died with infection. Exactly. Oh, yeah. But then antisepsis and the emergence of anesthetic agents, uh, it kind of opened up 
uh, things for the surgeon. And by the 1900s, medical advances had relieved society of some of the disease and suffering that they went through. So, you know, it was just a gradual process, a gradual evolution of learning. So really, when you think about it, the science of medicine, really with the studies of bacteria and infections and everything, just a little better than 120 some odd years old. Right. Yeah. Wow. And look at the progress now. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. But, you know, from the 1790s to about the middle of the 1800s, it was essentially the age of what they called heroic medicine or allopathy. Or, and that's what I'm going to talk about, allopathic physicians. Okay? Allopathic. Which would refer to today probably like a general practitioner. I see. So allopathic. But uh, they kind of dominated medical philosophy and education. And there was one famous doctor by the name of Benjamin Rush. He told the students that there was only one disease, which he called morbid excitement induced by capillary tension. And I won't repeat that. So whatever he meant by this claim, we don't really know what that means in modern terms. Okay? Uh-huh. But he said that this soul disease had a soul remedy, uh-huh. and that was bloodletting oh, no. and the purging of the stomach and the bowels. Purging? Of the stomach and the I'm bowels. I'm scared to ask how. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. Maybe I figured a you would. Okay. So to practice the allopathic medicine, a doctor needed only a, a sharp lancet so he could slice the vein. Oh. Or, you know, to bleed. Really? Which they did to Washington. And they just George let it go. Well, so long. You know, well, yeah. Just, just, you know, but then they would do it again. Hey, he's turning white over there, guys. Yeah. Uh, or they used leeches to suck blood. Oh. Um, but they used Ipecac to produce vomiting, calomel to empty the bowels, and a mustard plaster to burn blisters on the skin. So, see the title of my book, Zeb? Yeah, I'm sure bleed, glad you got it. Yeah. Bleed, blister, and purge. Yeah. And that's what they And they did. thought that would do it. Yeah, that was the philosophy. Woo. So... You know, it's easy to look back and see this Dr. Rush's uh, mistakes, but there were other things about him that do deserve to be remembered. He believed in the education of women, and he also urged his contemporaries to follow his example and treat the virtuous poor with respect. In other words, help take care of the poor people that are sick. And this is in what year? Uh, this is the, like the late 1700s, early I 1800s. See. I see. Yeah. But uh, Rush criticized the military uh, for the terrible conditions of soldiers' hospitals during the Revolutionary, Re- Revolutionary War. He saw the, what they call putrid fever that spread in the hospitals for what it was, uh, poisoning directly related to the crowding and the filth. And he was an early proponent of public health. So despite his... Uh, wrong attitudes about some things he did have have it right it's surprising anybody ever lived through that after they've been wounded exactly you know uh, i mean it's just the luck of the draw really because they would amputate you know fold the skin over and uh, move on to the next patient you know but the death of george washington in 1799 shows how these heroic methods were applied to the detriment of the patient, you know, Washington actually was dying of a throat infection that was obstructing his airway. Uh, kind of a kind of a form of severe tonsillitis was what he had. Really, but uh, Washington actually began the bleeding process uh, himself before the doctors even got there by having a servant open up a vein in his arm. 
because that was the method they thought worked. And it was a problem with his throat. Right. Well, he he was having a hard time breathing. Yeah. Well, when the doctors came, they continued the process, and he was bled four more times. Holy Okay. On the fourth bloodletting, one of the doctors said that the blood, the quote, the blood ran very slowly, appeared very thick. I mean, you can only lose so much blood. Now, one of the Washington's... Now, did he die from that? Yeah. One of Washington's doctors, uh, uh, by the name of Elisha Cullendick, argued against further bleeding, saying, quote, he needs all his strength. Bleeding will diminish it. Well, this doctor pleaded with the other two doctors to operate to open up an airway in his throat. In other words, to do a tracheotomy. Yeah. So, which would have saved his life. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> but during the hours before Washington died, the doctors applied blistering poultices. Oh, yeah. Gave him doses of calomel and other purges. So the poor guy's nearly dead. And, and now they, they're doing these other things. They just too. put him on the freeway. Yeah. I mean, he was just bound to die. But years later, one of Washington's doctors, uh, Dr. Brown, admitted that they should have heeded what Dr. Dick said. They should have taken no more blood from him. Quote, our best friend would have been alive now. But he also said, we were governed by the best light we had. We thought we were right. And so we are justified. How so. did they treat, uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but the in, during the Revolutionary War, all the gunshot wounds and everything? Uh you know, if it was in, like, the abdomen, the stomach, things like that, it, it was pre- Over. pretty fatal. Over. If it was a leg or an arm, they could amputate. Wow. So, but, and even in the Old West, anytime you got an arrow wound or a, a shotgun in the stomach or the abdomen or the chest, uh, usually it was pretty much you were done. Yeah. But, you know, the increasing pressure of uh, uh, critics and high-profile failures like Washington's, case contributed to a loss of respect for the doctors and and yet in their defense they were trying to do the best they could with what they knew but there were disputes uh, uh, there was a dr benjamin dudley a medical instructor in the early decades of the 1800s long before germs were discovered he begged his colleagues to boil their surgical instruments to prevent infection a practice a practice that he followed so uh, it was a new idea, but it was not regarded at all by his colleagues. And this is what year? Early 1800s. Wow. But he already knew that you should boil and try to get rid of the germs. So, oh But anything new that came along, Zeb, was usually uh, looked at with uh, distrust. So, Where does a guy <laughs> like Louis Pasteur fit into this? Uh, I'm not sure the exact year that he came into, okay. into the picture. I see. I, but uh, you know, you can only guess how many lives would have been saved during the Civil War oh if they would have followed this Dr. Dudley's advice to clean the instruments between uh, amputations and surgeries. Yeah. So, but there was another doctor at the uh, at this time, a Dr. Crawford of Baltimore. He wrote several articles pronouncing that mosquitoes were the source of malaria and yellow fever. Now, unfortunately, his viewpoint was contradicted at the time, uh, ridicule. He nearly lost his practice, but his hypothesis inspired Dr. Walter Reed, and you've heard of him, mm-hmm. and the others who years later finally proved the transmission of yellow fever by uh, mosquitoes. Now, Zeb, 
hold on to your stomach. Okay, folks, here we go. <laughs> there was the work of a Dr. Stubbins Firth. He contributed to the finding. In 1804, this young doctor proved that yellow fever was not contagious from person to person. He verified his theory by exposing himself to direct contact with those uh, suffering from the disease. In one ex- experiment, he cut the skin of his own arm and introduced fresh black vomit from infected people into the wounds, repeating the procedure 20 times. He also vaporized the liquid vomit and breathed the steam and even swallowed fresh vomit. Still, this brave doctor did not develop yellow fever. Okay, you know, we're past the, we're past the worst of it. No, we're not, because I can just see all of my restaurant owners and sponsors <laughs> saying, "Adios, amigo." <laughs> goodbye. But the, there were other stories of doctors that experimented on themselves. Oh my goodness, uh, especially during the 19th century, they, you know, in order to prove their theory, they had to experiment, and you've got to know that some of them it probably didn't work. This guy was a weirdo. Yeah, but. He had a theory, and he proved it. Yeah, it was yes. true. Yeah. So by the 1830s, uh, regular doctors, or uh, allopathic doctors, as, as I mentioned, their uh, therapies of bloodletting, purging, and blistering kind of faced some competition by what they called homeopaths. Now, it's hard to understand why people ever tolerated the treatment by the allopaths, you know, the bleeding, purging, and stuff, but apparently some people felt like the more bitter the taste, the better the medicine. And so after paying a professional, you know, some patients expected more than just time and nature to heal. So they figured, okay, the worse the treatment, the better I'm going to get. I wonder where the idea or the concept came to open up veins and, and let blood. Who came up with that idiotic idea that there was something wrong with the blood in your system that made you sick? Yeah, it was just a theory that the the what they called the humors or the the, uh, uh, the blood and the liquids in the body had to be eliminated, oh. and that was what they what they did. Now these homeopathic doctors uh, or what they called irregular doctors, uh, they didn't do all that stuff. So. Um, they didn't do the purges. Uh, uh, they didn't blister the skin. They didn't uh, use the leeches or things like that. I can see why we're not getting many calls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the homeopathy was more popular, and the practice attra- attracted a lot of well-to-do clients who didn't want to be punished with these severe methods. Aye, aye, aye. And furthermore, the allopaths found it difficult to criticize the homeopathic doctors because their results were actually no better. Uh, then, you know, but the homeopathic discipline was certainly less agonizing to the sick, and most homeopathic doctors were about equivalent in education to the allopathic doctors. And now, as an added bonus, homeopaths usually prescribed whiskey as a delivery. Well, now, wait a minute. You're, you're perking my interest here now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they usually prescribe whiskey as a dilutant for their medicine. Uh-huh. So the beneficial effects of the drugs, they believed, were magnified when diluted with alcohol. You have my complete content- attention right now. <laughs> so much more popular. I yeah. see. <clears throat> but it, in competition with the homeopaths, the regular doctors also began prescribing strong alcoholic tonics Uh because they found a medicine they knew would uplift their patients spirits and it was a sterilization type thing too uh yeah they used that uh, like to clean wounds antiseptic and and that type of thing yeah yeah. 
Okay, so you know the the alcohol uh, lifted definitely lifted the patient's spirits. You know they were right, even though the regular doctors were losing ground with their harsh methods. There continued to be more of them than the homeopathic doctors, and there were other kinds of healers that also claimed their skill at treating uh, any and all human illnesses. And with all the confusion and controversy, it was difficult, if not impossible, for a sick person to judge which method was the best. And among the choices, there was another one called hydropaths and botanic doctors who specialized in roots and herbs, as well as uh, some that sold various tonics or, you know, remedies, uh, snake oil, you know, if you will. Midwives delivered most of the babies. Uh, Other healers claimed to be bone setters or inoculators. Uh, You've touched on something right there. Now, uh, talking about physiology and the bones, and the reset of bones, etc. It amazes me how in the old days they knew how to or what to do in a broken bone case with a leg or an arm. Right. And they were, you know, very successful. I mean, if they got the the leg somewhat straight or the arm and then immobilized it, it could heal just fine. So they were probably very successful. But uh, Hmm. cancer doctors actually advertised in local newspapers. And then there were some who pretended to be Indian doctors because Indian healers were very popular at the time. But so there was a, you know, a lot of choices for the sick people, you know, homeopathics, the, the allopathic doctors, the Indian doctors, uh, the botanicals, the herbs. So there was a little good in all of that. When you think about, oh, let's go back to an old TV series. Let's go back to Gunsmoke with Doc Adams. Yeah. Back in the 1870s, back in a cow town, Dodge City, Kansas. Uh, in the mid 1870s, really, how much did they know at that time to be be kind of the town doctor i'm going to guess probably not all that much because they were still a lot of times using the same old methods really yeah but you know some of the theories and practices the different schools of treatment had uh some of them did have merit like uh take for example the water treatments recommended by these guys called the hydropaths for instance you know rheumatism arthritis skin disorders they could be relieved by soaking in water especially if it was the sulfur water mm-hmm. and at a time when few people bathed regularly you know water treatments accompanied by soap may have been the best treatment you could have yeah but that was the problem they didn't bathe regularly Right, and yet cleanliness, you know. Is next to godliness. It is. And they were a long way away. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the medical practitioner of any persuasion had some useful drugs. Among them was laudanum, which was kind of opium. Now, that was uh, back in the, help me, 1860s and 70s, wasn't uh-huh. it? Yeah, and that could ease pain. Uh, foxglove, which is actually digitalis, was a uh, heart stimulant. Really? Uh, bark or quinine uh, could be helped uh, for fever. Uh, what tree did that come from? Uh, the, uh, uh, oh, I know, the, uh, oh, it just slipped my mind. I'm sorry. The white, uh, uh, white qua- quaking aspen? Oh, okay. I think I want to say the quakey. I see. Uh, I believe. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but that's what sticks in my mind. But, you know, regardless of the type of medicine and herbs, most 19th century Americans seldom saw a doctor uh, and took little interest in uh, any of them. And doctors in general were not altogether trusted. They were expensive. A lot of the population lived in remote backwoods areas. And so they relied on folk medicine, which 
a lot of times could be just as good as anything. I yeah. mean, you know, if grandma knew that if you cleaned and bathed the wound and kept it clean, it probably was going to get better. You know, and they could, they would even sew up their own wounds. But real quick, and I've only got a minute left. Didn't the Indians really have advanced knowledge on some of the herbs and everything? They did. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that has been forgotten or lost. But yes, they, they've discovered that there are so many of those things that were. And they didn't keep records. No. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of the old wives' tales, a lot of times they weren't harmful. Uh, and sometimes the old time and nature was still the best thing. You know, rest, uh, cleanliness. Yeah. And uh, go find a bottle of whiskey. And, and, and <laughs> oh, plenty amounts of uh, the alcoholic beverage. Okay. <laughs> Dr. History, i got to cut you off, but thank you very much. And let's not go over that story again next week, shall we? I'll try to... Uh, <laughs> I'll try to watch that. All right, buddy. Hey, you're the best. Dr. History.